This is Isaka's Page to Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm John Brandt, Director of Professional Practices and Innovation for Isaka. Joining me today on his recently released article titled, The Impact of People on Today's Information Security Landscape is Business Development Manager for Cisco Systems, Thomas Lindenhofer. Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. I hope this is going to be a great informative session for everyone listening. Oh, I think it will be. If you wouldn't mind just just, uh, to introduce yourself to our listeners who might not be familiar with you or your, your, uh, you know, just a short biography, what it is that you do, uh, your responsibilities outside of your passionate work giving back to the ISACA community. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've worked for almost 23 years uh, at Cisco Systems here in Australia for the most part of the 23 years um, as a solutions architect. So I've done deployments, design, you know, optimizations and assessments from big organizations in all industry verticals across the world, primarily in Asia Pacific for those last 20, 21 years. After all that time, I thought, you know, it's time for something new. And uh, I just recently moved into a business development role, which is kind of on the other side of of the delivery fence, so to speak. Um, So basically, now I'm trying to advocate and and, and kind of sell the services to customers that I was delivering in my previous role. Very good. I appreciate that introduction for our our viewers. Uh, I'm sure that there's some challenges on that, but we'll save that for a different conversation. Uh, in your article, you really we talk about the people component. And anybody who works in the industry, the greater IT, right? Not even cybersecurity, anything technology related. People are just such an important component to this. And the, and your background really, to me, speaks to your experiences thus far with user design, with user acceptance and whatnot. So I I really think this is going to be a a good conversation here. To open up the dialogue, why do you think organizations struggle with motivating their employees, especially those outside of the technical teams, to care about security? Uh, Yeah, good question. So I I think um, it's primarily the lack of understanding of you know, the possible impact uh, a security threat can have on them, on the organization, on their colleagues, you know, on the systems they work with every day. And, you know, we can't really even blame them for it because if you're not an IT-savvy person, you know, you have only a very limited understanding of, you know, the systems you're working with and what makes them tick and, and what, what makes a network run in an organization. And so surely they understand it's, it, you know, it's part of the job to keep systems safe and, you know, everybody signs those um code of business conducts and various policies need to be read when you join the company. But overall, I would say it's it's a bit of, it sounds maybe a little bit harsh, but um, it's a bit of a combination of complacency, lack of awareness, and, and in parts also ignorance because everyone is busy. Everyone kind of goes on with their day job. You know, they have things to worry about to, to do their job properly. And for them then to think about, oh, what can or can I not do to keep everybody safe and my system safe? You know, it's for them, it's just an additional burden. And like for an IT person, it might come natural, right? For us in IT, working in IT all, all, all our lives, um, it's, it's kind of second nature to think of those things, right? We don't struggle with the concept of keeping things secure because that's our job. And then, you know, in other parts, it's obviously 
a bit of a leadership problem to properly articulate uh, the potential outfall from a security compromise and what it means or what role everybody can play in keeping the organization safe. So it's a bit of a combination of, you know, personal traits, personal attitudes, and, and I guess processes and around that in an organization. Now, within your article here, you made a, a statement here that we're talking about people can learn, right? And they do learn and they can evolve, to, but that there's some limitations there. You actually kind of pivot and, and talk about some fundamental human traits that almost that almost make this impossible, that they're barriers. Can you speak to that a little bit more beyond the couple of things that you had just touched on? Yeah, sure. So what I meant by that is that, you know, like I mentioned before, say hypothetically a person joins a new company, you know, typically they go through an onboarding program that involves reviewing some policy documents, accepting certain regulations and, and, and I guess, processes that the company outlines for each employee, like acceptable use policy is a good example. You know, then you have to go through a certain number of typically online trainings these days that explain how things work, what to do, what not to do, where to log on, and how to escalate things. You know, and part of that is also typically ongoing things like, um, you know, these this phishing campaigns and, and kind of, or supposed to be fun anyway, <laughs> exercises for employees to that kind of teach them in a fun way to be careful about, you know, not opening attachments in emails to get from someone that look a little bit suspicious or clicking on links. And, you know, this is all great and we should not stop doing that. But um, I guess the attention span, especially in today's business world of people is very short, right? So they may pay attention to this training or to what someone says around security for a short period of time and then kind of it's, it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, and a week later, everything's forgotten. And, and, you know, it's the human trait there is basically that we lose interest in things very quickly, right? We don't pay attention to this for extended period of time unless it's really important to us. And because, you know, coming back to what I said before, if I get the feeling it's not affecting me personally, my life, my well-being, for instance, a security compromise or incident, then in the people's minds, it's why should I worry about it any more than taking the box here? Yes, I've done this online phishing training and beyond that, I don't really care because it's just going to cost me time and whatever I got from it, you know. So human behavior that, yeah, sure, we can learn to some extent to generate some overall high-level awareness, but we can't change the fact that people lose interest very quickly in something unless it affects them personally their life or their well-being right and, and i guess there's just human characteristics you know everybody's brought up differently lives in different environments and, and and has different types of friends and you know there's a heavy influence from the media from tv from the internet you know in some cases it's even pure ignorance like this this kind of don't care attitude that you can see in, in some people where they're like well why would i care it, it's, it's not my problem, right? They think it's not their problem until something happens. And um, unfortunately, even if something happens, most people don't still understand that a lot of issues that arise out of a, a major compromise, actually, there are in human behavior. Somebody clicked something, opened something, or did the wrong thing, 
and it kind of went the ripple effect on from there, right? So we can only teach so much to to people to be aware of it and do our best to educate them. But um, you know, as I said, usually comes back after a while to what you're made of, essentially, right? The character. So on that, so I'm going to unpack that a little bit because this is a, an area that I, I'm really, um, I've spent some time in with my background on some of the things even outside of technology. So we talk about attention span and, and I think that that's worthy because I think arguably enterprises don't do a good enough job allocating the time for external requirements, whether it's this kind of training, whether it's an HR training, whatever, like we just like it becomes a, hey, get this done on your free time. So that's more of a systemic issue to me. And I think your points are valid, right? Don't get me wrong. The frustration I have within our industry is that we've largely tried to go it alone. Um, we are a victim, in my, in my opinion, of a lot of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. And, and I'm going to give a good example here. We talk about fishing training, and there's obviously different qualities of, of that that are out there. The problem is, and again, my perspective is that when we start talking about human performance, human learning, there's a discipline that is dedicated to that, right? Learning and design professionals could actually really maximize in that instead of it becoming a let's go buy the cheapest thing we can do to basically check the box that we did this training, right? Because I think you would admit, you, you would agree with me that com security by compliance never works, correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, totally valid point that for most companies, unfortunately, a lot of those things that are done, they're checking a box. You can even go as far as saying, and I've seen this many times before, a company might have to do some PCI compliance, right? Or be or they want to be compliant with some of those ISO standards, 27001, for instance, right? There's many others out there. But as we all know, those, I guess, um, policies or those standards, they're written fairly high level, right? Very broadly. So by implementing that, there's a lot of things that can be based on interpretation, right? They say, well, you need to have a firewall control, but it doesn't tell you to what extent you have to implement this firewall control, right? The, it's up to the individual, I guess, IT team or, or security team to then make sure the policies on this firewall are implemented as good as possible to keep things tight, right? But that's where typically things fall apart because, you know, from the top level down, all they care about is, have you met this compliance requirement to implement the firewall? And people will say, yeah, of course, sure, here it is. Uh, we, we bought this Cisco or whatever other firewall and um, it's implemented. Whether it's configured properly or not is a completely different story, right? So then a compromise or, or an attack happens and everybody's surprised by, oh my God, we implemented this firewall. Why did we get hacked or, or, or what happened with these RPS systems that we bought? Completely overlooking the fact that security charging by being compliant doesn't make you more secure, right? It's just taking a box and it's the same in the people space with not paying enough attention to people's skills, people's, um, I guess, awareness, you know, it, it, go, it goes on from there. So, and, but like I outlined in my article that I think in the technology space, there's a lot more focus on 
doing the right thing, buying the right products for mitigating this attack and top of um, you know threat. Um, there's a lot of focus on the on the technology side process. I would say, yeah, sure, there's people that focus on those processes, um, but I think the people side really falls kind of under the table, you know, in terms of the amount of focus that's spent there. So a- along with that, so my follow-on thing is that you know one of the things that we're also plagued by is that we're trying to treat this as a business problem, and, and, and by all and large, cybersecurity is a business enabler. However, by the time folks ever get into the workforce, all of their bad technology habits are already solidified. We're not doing a very good job with digital literacy in its infancy, right? What I find, and I'd be interested in your thoughts here, is that most of our the, our youth and our and those that are joining the workforce at the beginning of their careers, they simply want to be consumers of technology. They lack some of the understanding of the implications. They're looking at it; it's a tool, and, and by and large, technology is a wonderful tool. However, as a as a tool, though, there's risks that you and I are fully aware of, right? That span both security, privacy, a number of other different things that are out there. So, and it's not necessarily our problem to solve because it's bigger, but the burden falls on us because the information security function is largely charged with changing user behavior, right? At the at the end of the day. Perfectly right. And uh, unfortunately, I think there's no, no real good answer for it to tackle that because typically, as you know, you know, think about the university as a classic example. Lots of young people, thousands of them, right, consuming various resources that the campus provides, hopping onto the network with any device they, they really purchase themselves, right? The university generally doesn't buy, you know, a notebook or a mobile phone for them. So, you know, university is a classic example where the IT department or, or the security people there, their biggest concern is how can we make this secure possible without relying on the user to do the right thing? Because they don't, right? I mean, young people, especially in the university, sometimes they're bored. They, they try to get into something or or hack into something. Yeah. So that's where the technology comes in that is supposed to help us combat or, or mitigate some of those threats so basically users not doing the right thing right limiting access to where it needs to be and you know this whole zero trust i guess methodology and, and concepts that are pretty popular right now coming to play where we say well don't really care what connects to the network or who it is i'm going to verify it and i'm going to verify it all the time and if you do the wrong thing well you're not getting onto the network right so you kind of force user behavior with technology, because if people don't get network access, they're going to be pretty annoyed, right? So they will say, well, I couldn't get network access because um, my device was compromised or I tried to access the wrong things on the internet and I got kicked off. So that, of course, drives user behavior, but we force it in a way without people understanding why we do it, right? They see it as an annoyance. And um, I mean, again, there's no there's no easy answer, but um, what I see, for instance, is would be important. Say, give this case that I brought up in this article around the healthcare absolute meltdown. I think if if people in the healthcare sector, for instance, and that includes everyone, right, staff in the, in the hospital, nurses, doctors, etc., 
if they would be clearly explained in a scenario that could be a one-hour session somewhere with people presenting a scenario saying, okay, I explain you what would happen if there was a massive attack on a hospital and it takes the network out, the hospital can't internet access, everything's going to be locked down because we have been compromised. And explain them in this scenario, this means you go back to paper-based work. This means you cannot connect any of the machines that are currently supplying sometimes life essential things to patients. You can't connect that to the network. You will not get paid because the payment systems are down. You will not be able to access any on, 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 on your work computer because um, the authentication mechanism has been compromised. Uh, those servers have been basically wiped clean. And it's maybe then that people realize, oh, well, I can play a role here to do the right thing because I don't want these things to happen. I want to get paid, you know, and, and I don't want to compromise patient safety. And it's this kind of, I think, walkthrough to people explain in real life scenarios what actually happens if a massive compromise occurs that it may settle in, at least maybe not in all people's minds, but at least in a, in a large portion of the employee workforce they begin to understand that it can impact them. So, you know, we you've talked about a couple of things and, and, and everything we've discussed so far has really been touched, you know, has been anchored in soft skills. And, and there's a, a data point that came out of ISACA's 2022 state of cybersecurity where this year we kind of dug into soft skills. Again, the, the intent with this is to provide actionable information to, to the community to kind of shape programs, you know, and, and kind of have a pulse on what's going on. One of the things that comes to mind, you know, that when we ask them specifically about how their organization or, you know, within their context, they viewed um, a certain list of soft skills, the bottom two is honesty and empathy, right? And at the end of the day, to me, like, and again, there's some of us that have been very vocal and, you know, and kind of standing on the proverbial desk about how important and almost damning that is because if we're not empathetic to the business units as well as the users, right, we're never going to move forward because, you know, those of us we that have been in the industry any long in time, swinging the, the proverbial hammer does not work. Right. It just doesn't like we've seen it time and time again where it doesn't work. And there is this this level of buy in that you talk about. that's absolutely critical that we have to be able to communicate them why it matters. You know, in this regard, like our workforce needs to always be able to put doing the right thing up front. And second thing is you got to be able to have empathy and be able to relate to the individual. And, and that does put a large burden potentially on the info security cell. It could, you could, it, there, to me, it's a partnership opportunity with the HR functions because there is something, there are things that you can do that might not necessarily entail going and buy a phishing simulation exercise program, right? Because what we're seeing largely, some of those programs are more effective than others, but you have to be able to catch people off guard because just going through the exercise, the CBT-based training where you just kind of click through, 
you and I both know that somebody, the average employee is multitasking. They're doing it over lunch. They're checking email. They're playing it in the background. And so the training is only effective as the design that went into it with those safeguards to make sure that you can't skip forward. You have to answer knowledge checks or whatnot within within the program to make it very much engaging, right? Beyond that, you know, you had talked about, you know, being able to, to relate it back to the to the employee. And I and I think that's so critical. And in the training world, there's this concept called with them, right? What's in it for me? And to me, when as you were rattling off the examples, the pay was the one that was like, please save pay, because that's the one that people largely care about, right? If you're not getting paid, you can't process, you know, hey, I want to go on vacation. Like it becomes a little bit more real to the individual. Do you think if we made them more aware of that, do you think that that by and large is going to change behavior? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just thinking of a simple example, and obviously this is a little bit oversimplified because you always have a little bit more control over your kids than you have over employers, right? Because your kids, you know, they kind of have to listen to you, and if they don't, you still have somewhat... um, right to you know to force them into something whereas with employees you can't do that but i was just thinking you know when my kids grew up and i was working for cisco for a long time and I obviously have a, a various equipment at home to keep my own home network secure there was always this discussion also amongst parents in the school oh yeah you know like what are you doing about um keeping the home network safe and to block kids from going here and there and then you know, and people came up with all sorts of different things like time of the day access lists to block them from going to the internet and 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 block certain sites. And you know, I tried this too in the beginning, but I came pretty quickly to the conclusion that um, it's too too time consuming as a parent, right? You can't be all the time every day updating your whitelist on on or, or blacklist, whatever you call it, on where people can go because internet sites come and go, and then. The kids get older, they have to access certain websites to do their study, do some research, and then they say, oh, Dad, I can't access this website. So off you go, you know, try to add some more URLs to this whitelist. And it's not practical, right? And after a while, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to put anything on, right? They can do whatever they want, but I give them a clear explanation of why I don't want them to go here or there and what if they did, what's the possible consequences, and obviously, I needed to tell them many years over and over again, because the question always comes back, oh, well, why can't they go to Facebook? And why can't they do this? I said, well, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. You can do it if you want. I'm just giving you some advice why it's a bad idea, right? This kind of taking your time over and over again to really sit down with the individual and explaining them the repercussions of, of certain actions, right? Because... Like we said, this, all these programs that are designed, they're good. But what, what, what is lacking is giving the employee a real understanding as to why. Why would I do this? Why do I need to do this? And how does it affect me as an individual, right? And, and the impact may be different depending on where they work on. But, you know, and it's also a leadership problem because, like you said, in, in my case study, it was a classic example of, the leadership cared just about patient safety. So it's a big drama if somebody in a hospital falls down and breaks a leg, but did not understand the impact of, of a compromise on a healthcare network, because then it's not just about broken legs, it's about everybody being offline in the hospital. 
that is a big, much bigger impact. So because the lack of understanding in the senior leadership team of security, they didn't place enough importance on that. And then if it lacks leadership in that level, you can imagine what happens further down, right? Because further down, then there's also not the right people in place on the mid-level management level, also lack of security understanding. And before you know it, in the organization, you have nobody really driving security in any shape or form, right? So obviously, all they do is tick the boxes to meet some regulation and some audit, and it goes on from there, right? And that's what I kind of highlighted as collateral damage, where you can sort of deal with an issue or a weakness in one area because if the other areas have a better security posture, so to speak, it can compensate a little bit for the weakness in other areas, right? But if you have lack of understanding in, in senior leadership, lack of skills further down, lack of staff, um, lack of policies, lack of processes, you know, before you know it, it all comes together and all it needs is one area being compromised and the whole thing falls apart. And this is exactly what happened in that case. So I wanted to highlight that this, this kind of exercise of understanding collateral damage, I think organizations are not doing that enough or maybe not at all, right? To sort of say, hey, well, what happens if we get compromised? How would our SOC team react to it? Do we have the tools, the processes? Do we have the right skills? How would our staff react to it? What's what's our leadership? You know, what are our policies and processes around it? So it's like a, a whole ecosystem. Right. And it sounds kind of, uh, people probably think, yeah, of course it is, you know, it's a no-brainer, right? Us in security understand it, but it, it doesn't work that way in organizations. That's the problem. So, you know, within that response, obviously, you know, in, in uh, you, 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 did cover the executive leadership challenge here. And I think one of the things, right, you, you've worked, you know, Cisco is a large, is a large company, right? And, and I think, you know, one of the things that's, that we have there is that organizational size is highly uh, relevant to this conversation because the larger the company, theoretically, the, the more, they're better resourced than others. And there is our research as well as others that are out there where executive leadership has prioritized cybersecurity and cyber maturity, there are very, very tangible results to performance, right? At the end of the day and the effect and the, the emphasis that they place on it and whatnot. So you, you can't, uh, you know, overstate that importance. So, you know, within that, when we talk executive leadership in, in by and large, there is a lot of variability to where the chief information security officer, the CISO, where that person may be aligned, whether they actually have a, a seat at the the big table, so to speak. But regardless of where they're placed, how vital is it for the CISO to create an environment that prioritizes security and get that buy-in? To begin with, I've seen organizations at very fairly decent sizes that didn't even have a CISO, right? They have all sorts of different CXOs that fulfill various functions and sometimes, you know, it's a a CTO that tries to do a bit of security on the side. And as, as we know, you know, you shouldn't do security on the side, right? You, you either focus on that or, or you focus on something else. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, in, in, I guess in engineering terms, we always call it the layer eight, right? The political layer often comes in the way as well, because um, I've seen quite a number of organizations where on various levels, People's personal agendas and egos, they also come in the way of making things efficient and the way it should be. And it's kind of mind-blowing to me sometimes 
to see that even executives or senior management misses the, the, the basic point of that security is supposed to be a business enabler, right? It's, they still see security as something that's a headache that's, a, that's, that's blocking them, right? And maybe it is in some cases, because if security is designed in a bad way, it is prohibitive to doing business efficiently, right? But it comes at, at those levels to have this understanding to sort of say, you know, let's do security right from the top down to make it a business enabler. And by that, I mean, if I get the security right, it needs to be as transparent as possible for the end user. You know, like when end users come onto the network, I don't want to have a million pop-ups before I can even go to the network, right? I don't want, maybe you don't even see anything at all, right? But have to secure in the back end. And um, if I have a solid security posture, that means my business is less likely to go down, right? And having this basic understanding of, you know, in the, in the exec level is, is often not there. For them, you know, we, we, we battle this, as I said, I've been working as a solutions architect for over 20 years. And this situation has not really improved, right? So, unfortunately, more often than not, we still talk to people on management layers that think security is just a, you know, a problem child, right? You want to do as little as possible because it's a headache. It's and, and, and even so, it's not, you know, on the money side, right? Everybody looks at revenue and, and the margins and all these things. So security is generally not seen as a, as a revenue generator. It just costs money. And, you know, there's this classic example where we put all sorts of different security systems in place. And then at the end of the day or end of the year, I would say once a year, we do a review with the management level and, and, and basically say, well, why do we spend all this money on all these kids? Nothing happened the last year. Well, exactly. Because we spent all this money on this kid, nothing happened for the last year. So that's a good thing, right? So and it, it's this kind of mindset that is really prohibitive to, to you know, a good security outcome. And it, it's, it's very hard to change because, again, it comes back to human nature. It's an individual thing. So as a solutions architect, right, in your background, you know, and to where you're at now, actually trying to, you know, basically on more of a customer facing thing. I think one of the things, you know, that anyone in your position, let you know, to include security leadership data, data is everything, right? Like when it's, it's one thing to be able to just kind of speculate, right? That we spent this amount of money and this went down, but you, you know, this is where the importance of measurement comes into play because at the end of the day, as, as you're fully aware, right? Executive leadership does, they are really, it's about the bottom line, right? It's dollars and cents at the end of the day, security is largely a cost center, However, there are opportunities to infuse that in there where, you know, to your point, we did this, this investment prevented this from happening, or we saw a decline in this adverse stuff happening. So again, just a shameless plug for, for being data driven at the end of the day, because metrics matter in, in this world. It is hard at times, especially when we're just we, you know, security people by and large, we're in a, we're in a firefighting mode, right? Very reactive as are most protection oriented occupations. But, you know, we, we've adequately described the challenges that are out there. 
I'll, you know, there's a lot of agreement that there's a lot of data to speak to that. But so what steps can an organization do to improve employees, their willingness to, to be part of the solution? Um, yes, yeah, so as I said before, the, I think they should not stop doing those generally regular awareness sessions that they're already doing. That certainly doesn't hurt. But I think there needs to be a bit more emphasis on making this experience a little bit more personal, right? Even though people are busy, you know, this is always the number one excuse. We are busy, but, you know, if you're too busy, then uh, eventually Netflix is going to go down if you get hacked because you were too busy to secure it. If you take it down to 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 connect with the people on an individual or, or I guess on a basic level, with that, I mean, make them feel important, right? Make them feel they're part of a, a bigger purpose of the organizations. They contribute value. Their uh, opinion is valued. And, you know, pull people into a room, whether it's a, a large audience in an auditorium or, or if it's a, a small team meeting with, you know, 10, 15 people, it doesn't matter the, which way you do it. But sit down with them and have a frank conversations, running through a couple of scenarios saying, you know, we don't really want to go on everybody's nerves to keep talking about security, but here's a few examples of what happened when people did this and this and this, and this is why we need your help. Everybody plays an important role because if 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 we don't get this right, stuff goes down. Worst case scenario, you lose your job because the company goes under because they can't recover from this loss and from you know the loss of reputation, etc. Right? Imagine it happens to a bank. And surely everybody cares about their job, right? Or we say, like before I mentioned, you know, you won't get paid. Or, you know, if the garage is hacked, you can't get out of the garage. You're going to spend the night here in the office, right? There's, there's various scenarios. But we, we have to get away from this, yeah, quick, do your online training, be done with it, click, 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 and browse through it, don't care. That's not going to, you know, fix the problem, really. Because, again, people come back to, well, what I care doesn't be really, I don't really understand the underlying issue. So I want to shift gears here for a second because there's there's folks out in industry that would that challenge this notion that we can solve just the people component. And and I, you know, I'm more in the camp of just because it's difficult and trying to affect user behavior you don't just abandon that. But there's there's a compelling argument out there at the end of the day that people are going to be people and that's the basis for technical control. Now, whereas you didn't really touch on that because that wasn't the basis of this article, like we were focusing on the people and I totally get it, but there's this balancing act and you and you touched on one one uh, thing, right? With your example, you're talking about your kids. And as a parent myself, I've been down that road and you're absolutely right. It wasn't scalable for a family. It sure as heck not really scalable in the workplace, chasing the proverbial perfect uh, whitelist or no access list. So I really welcome your thoughts as we kind of wrap this up here as to what's that sweet spot between the technical controls and the nexus of the human behavior. With your background, do you think that there's value in bringing the problem set to some kind of small cross-functional working group in a company to say, these are the challenges, these are the potential solutions? Do you think in doing something like that might increase 
their receptiveness and willingness to kind of be part of the solution, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I mean, like you're correct to say, it's a, it's, a, it's a balancing act between, you know, people process technology. And each of those three, you know, I guess areas is, is really important in their own right, right? And we can we can think about this concept, you know, been out many years called defense in debt. So on the technology side, you know, we'd have multiple layers of security. If one is compromised, we still have a second layer to to help us mitigate a potential attack. And it's I think it's similar in the in the in this triad where we say, well, typically we say the first layer of defense is the person, right? Is are the people. Obviously, like we say, we can't guarantee everybody's doing the right thing. And sometimes it's not even intentional. It's a mistake that somebody makes, right? That's where the process and technology should compensate for that, right? And that's important. So I think it's important for organizations to keep doing that, obviously. But um, I think there should be a bit more emphasis on on, on getting this balance right and, and not just put everything in the technology basket, right? The processes are typically written fairly loosely in most organizations, what I've seen. Um, so, and there's tip, they're typically not up to date, you know, policies and things that are often out of date, uh, or in most cases, actually, policies may be there, but they are not actively enforced. So that doesn't really help either. Compliance is not checked. I think a working group in, in, in whatever shape or form that is may help to look at it holistically, right? To sort of say, let's take these three different areas and, and look at our strengths and weaknesses in each of those and really make sure we have this defense in depth across people process technology, right? So, and we can sleep tight, you know, if somebody clicks the wrong thing, okay, it's not ideal. We'll work with that person, see what happened, but um, be confident that the processes we wrapped around that, which may be what the detection response capabilities of the SOC are, for instance, we are confident they work well, so they will capture that, not to worry. And if they fail, we got good technology that can mitigate some of those problems as well. So. It's a balancing act, but I see also if they invest more on the people side, it's probably a lot cheaper than, um, you know, buying a lot of technology kit, right? Because except for time, you know, and people's commitment, it, it doesn't really cost much to, to get your team in, you know, maybe once every two months for an hour and talk through some scenarios and, and give them a bit of a heads up what's happening in the industry around security and why we need everybody's help. So it's, I think it's a fairly cheap option that can go a long way. Well, that's a really good, uh, you know, wrap up, if you will. And I, I think I would just add to that, right? At the end of the day, where the people come back into play with technology is that principles of least privilege need to know are underpin all kinds of accesses, right? And, and that's that's always an area of opportunity for any business to kind of refine who has access to what in the spirit of and support of this longstanding, uh, you know, approach of defense in depth and, and zero trust strategy, right? Which is really, you know, this evolution of us of assume the breach but you know we could talk about this all day long unfortunately we are out of time i really want to appreciate you thomas for coming on here and speaking with me today if you want to read thomas's article click on the link in the description below i'm john brant thanks for tuning in thank you for joining us today for this episode of page to podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode 